This is the Nietzsche Podcast. George Puttenham, in the year 1589, uttered the following words. Quote, Peace makes plenty. Plenty makes pride. Pride breeds quarrel, and quarrel breeds war. War brings spoil, and spoil poverty. Poverty, patience, and patience, peace. So peace brings war, and war brings peace. End quote. Peace brings war, and war brings peace. This is, in its aphoristic form, the core message of Ibn Khaldun, as we studied him last week with our introduction to the Muhadima. Khaldun's central premises are that the states have lifespans just like individuals do, that this lifespan is determined by economic and demographic factors, and that there's this quality called asabia, or group feeling, that rises when a group lives in hardship and wanes when a group lives in security. And when the asabia of a group declines, uh, the group eventually dissolves and is overwhelmed by its external environment. And in some sense, George Puttenham is making the same observation, but in the form of folk wisdom. But he perceives exactly the same thing, perhaps intuitively, that in times of peace, in times of abundance, uh, when he says that this sort of creates pride and pride breeds quarrel, we might see that as the declining sense of group feeling that Khaldun warned about. And then with war and the devastation that war brings and the hardship that it visits upon the populace, a new sense of group feeling arises, allowing for them to secure a new state of peace. For Khaldun, the Bedouins of the desert were the origin and reservoir of all human culture. Uh, human culture emerges from the desert and it establishes itself and then ossifies into sedentary societies. So the desert, the place of hardship, the place of desolation, from here is where culture and civilization arises, and then eventually the desert takes it back again. This observation that there's a cyclical pattern of war and peace, of stability and chaos, prosperity and dissolution, it's found throughout the history of human thought. We found it in Thucydides, in Plato, in Machiavelli, in Nietzsche, and now Ibn Khaldun, and George Puttenham expresses the same. And uh, we even we read an essay by John Club back in season one that more or less advanced the same idea. And interestingly, Glubb gives roughly the same lifespan that he sees for uh, large empires as Ibn Khaldun does, uh, around 200 years. Uh, and yet, we might still have many unanswered questions about all of this as to how this process works, uh, whether it is indeed destined to happen the same way, and furthermore, whether we can actually measure this process and predict outcomes. Ever since Thucydides, we've been driving at this science of history idea, right? And now, in recent years, there are some who are trying to bring about just that. So today we're going to talk about Peter Turchin, who's put forward this new discipline that he calls Cleodynamics. The name derives from Cleo, the muse of history, uh, we actually used a portrait of Cleo in the first season as well for you know an episode on Nietzsche's essay on history on the use and abuse of history for life. Thought it was appropriate to use the muse of history, but so the term Cleo plus the term dynamics, meaning here the structure of change. 
And so cleodynamics is an attempt at representing the structure of historical change in a mathematical way, such that we can begin to advance interpretations of history, not by means of mere speculation, but by means of scientific experimentation, i.e. by making predictions, checking said predictions against the observable results to make the science of history quantifiable. This is Peter Turchin's avowed goal. Now, this, of course, is something that many historians are resistant to or think can't be done. And there are a number of reasons for this, chief among them, if I may be so bold, being the prejudice that human beings are simply too complicated to ever be uh, captured within a mathematical equation, right? That our free will is this acausal element that can simply never be predicted, that human beings will always be too chaotic for any scientific process to measure or to account for all the possibilities. Uh, in short, that we're special, right? You know, either by virtue of having a soul or having this ego consciousness such that we're set apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, you know, those populations of animals that can be measured and the patterns of, you know, their survival and flourishing or their decline and extinction, these patterns can be sort of ascertained. You might be able to do that with an animal population, but you can't do that with human beings. The reason why Peter Turchin never took that particular objection seriously was his background in studying pine beetle populations. Turchin began his career as an ecologist at a time when the field was on the precipice of beginning to model populations with supercomputers and to begin asserting bold hypotheses about patterns in the field of biology. In other words, coming up with a mathematical equation for charting out patterns of different species demographics. So, for example, Turchin's work primarily involved predicting the conditions under which a beetle population would grow, when it would start to, you know, the point at which the population would begin to explode, and then where it would peak, and then when it were, would decline after that, right? D deciding what factors and at which point all of these things would occur and mathematically modeling it. And he said that his colleagues at the time were rather math-phobic, as he put it, and that much of the field was not ready to encapsulate their understanding of species demographics in this mathematical way. He sort of compares the, the difference with what he's doing, creating these mathematical models based on looking at the big picture view of the species with what a lot of other ecologists were doing, which was, you know, picking up beetles and, you know, counting the number of legs or antennae on them, right? That that's sort of like, he sees that sort of thing as data gathering. It's a prelude to a science, but it's not the actual science itself until you begin testing hypotheses, right? Now, it seems that Turchin was somewhat ahead of his field. He published a few more articles in scientific journals before quitting the field of ecology and moving on to history. Uh, one of those articles was published in Oikos, where he posed the question, quote, does population ecology have general laws? Turchin argued in, in this paper that ecology indeed did have laws, but that his colleagues were often resistant to calling them as such. And he wrote, quote, ecologists know that these are laws and should call them as such, end quote. Most ecologists would publicly argue against such a proposition, insisting that each situation was different, 
Just because a certain demographic pattern might apply to pine beetles, this didn't mean it would apply to a mosquito population, for example. And that's true. Uh, there are differences in every case, but Turchin argued that with a massive amount of data now gathered by ecologists, general propositions that were applicable across species were now possible. To focus on these idiosyncratic differences between species is just being sheepish at that point, right? Being sheepish about making predictions. Um, Turchin's goal was to bring ecology further into the hard sciences with hard math to cash out the claims that it was making. And the unwillingness to do, to do this is simply the failings of the scientists involved in the field who don't want to go out on a, on a limb or be proven wrong, right? But so long as they had no overarching principles to explain their field, they didn't really have knowledge as Turchin saw it. They described a bunch of things, but without explaining them. That's a common theme in sort of the, uh, the views of history that we've been tackling on this um, program. Um, the, these are historians who like to bridge the knowledge together and think that that's what a true explanation requires. Now, in a strange way, Turchin's work in ecology was sort of the same thing that he brought to history. He wanted to transition his study of human populations in this case uh, from the data gathering phase and begin to crunch the historical data, data that we've gathered from 10,000 years of documenting the rise and fall of empires, you know, studying how social groups emerge and the different social hierarchies that they form, different political and national entities that emerge and how they rise and fall, right? And like with ecology, historians are also resistant to coming up with these laws or to invoke things like laws to begin with. And as we mentioned, Turchin turned out to be largely ahead of the curve in ecology because now many of the things that he identified as laws in the 1990s have turned out to be accepted by the field and are usually called as such now without much controversy. The ideas that Turchin put forward then, controversially, are now cited in textbooks. So Turchin believes that similarly, historians will eventually come to accept uh, his work in cleodynamics and apply the laws of human social groups to their own interpretations of history moving forward. Turchin said in an interview with The Atlantic back in 2020, quote, all sciences go through this transition to mathematization. I was looking for a subject where I could help with this transition to a mathematized science. There was only one left, and that was history. End quote. Again, the skepticism still remains, I think, because there's something deep within the intuition of most of us that says, well, I'm not like an insect population. You know, human civilization are not like a group of uh, mosquitoes or even some more complex animal like foxes or even like a blue whale, right? No matter how intelligent uh, animals of other species are, we always assume there's something uniquely special about humanity. Um, and it's that element of our free will, usually the fact that we think we can do anything regardless of our context and our age and our upbringing, uh, that inherently, that, what would you say, prejudice or bias inherently makes human history beyond scientific measurement. And so historians go on reading speeches and letters and studying accounts of events. But for Turchin, that's like counting the legs in the beetle right? Or measuring its antennae. It's still in the gathering data phase. Eventually for the science to bear fruit, you must transition 
into the mathematical phase, into the extrapolation phase, right, we might say. So this is where we ask the question, what does all this gathered data indicate? How does it constellate together? And so Turchin therefore disagrees with the argument that history cannot be predicted because human beings are just so defiantly unpredictable. That's just a way to stay on the gathering data phase forever as a stagnant, soft science. He even calls it a pseudoscience. To be a true hard science, you have to be mathematized. So Turchin, like Ibn Khaldun, perceives that individual willpower, you know, it, it's not like it doesn't exist or can't affect historical events, but it only really becomes operative in the world when there is a significant group feeling at work that channels the will of that one individual. That against the power of the collective, individual decision-making is rather weak in moving history and must always harness the collective in order to do so, which means that we should concern ourselves first and foremost with the patterns and laws which affect and determine um, the behavior of the entire collective or the fate of the entire collective, that individual decisions and actions will always vary, but that on average the group will act in a predictable way, and that primarily the causes and conditions of a population thriving or dissolving have little to do with key decisions or anything that even enters into the realm of free choice, but it has to do more with intergenerational dynamics, things that can't even be perceived by one individual, but have to do with, um, you know, the, all of these multitude of factors that develop over decades and centuries. And what all this means will become a little clearer as we get into the work itself. For today, uh, we'll be using a little bit, bit of the book uh, Secular Cycles by Turchin and Nefedov, but primarily the book War and Peace and War by Turchin, as well as the book Ultra Society, uh, also by Turchin, and that one is subtitled How 10,000 Years of War Made Humans the Greatest Cooperators on Earth. I'm not really going to give a summary of what is in any of these texts, uh, instead, I'm going to endeavor today to give you the broad principles of cleodynamics as I understand them, and more importantly, explain to you why Turchin puts forward these principles in the first place, what evidence he sees for them, how they operate together in bringing, bringing forth this like cycle of history um, of war bringing peace and peace bringing war, as we talked about at the beginning. What I love about Turchin's approach is that he achieves that synthesis of understanding individual interest and collective interest as inseparable rather than opposed. And he also understands that the dichotomy between the view of the Edenic noble savage and the view of the solitary poor, nasty brutish, and short life of the savage, both of those uh, views are false. It's a, it, The dichotomy itself is false, right? The question is not whether humans are violent and self-interested or cooperative and nice, but rather that we're violent to the outgroup and self-interested insofar as that self-interest is always furthered by the collective that we identify ourselves with. And we're cooperative and nice with the others within our group that help us coordinate to destroy and dominate the other groups, right? That cooperation and competition aren't opposites. That doesn't make sense. Uh, rather, there are different levels of cooperation and competition in human social life that we're always engaged in. And, you know, in some sense, we're a species that operates on the level of the group. We're always cooperating and competing at the same time. 
Um, and so those are very important things to understand that uh, we have to get rid of some very simple bifurcated thinking um, should be easy for a Nietzschean audience, right? So without further ado, we'll get into the ideas of Turchin, uh, these principles of cleodynamics. I'm going to quote from all over Turchin's work here and getting these ideas across. Usually just I'll select the most straightforward phrasing of the general principle that I can find in his work. Uh, and as we get all these ideas across, we'll consider some specific examples. The first big concept to grasp here is the idea of the secular cycle. The meaning of the term secular here is not the religious or political use of the term, but intended to indicate something which occurs once a century or longer. The term comes from its use to refer to the celebratory games in Rome that occurred on a secular basis, so century or longer. We also see the use of the term in economics to refer to extremely large or long-term trends. So it's a pattern uh, or fluctuation that persists for a long time. So a secular cycle is a cycle that plays out over a long period of a century or more. Peter Turchin writes, quote, A typical historical state goes through a sequence of relatively stable political regimes separated by unstable periods characterized by recurrent waves of internal war. The characteristic length of both stable or integrative and unstable or disintegrative phases is a century or longer, and the overall period of the cycle is about two to three centuries. End quote. So right here we have two more terms, integrative and disintegrative phases. So in this secular cycle, we have a phase lasting about a century or longer, and a second phase lasting about the same length, one in which the social structure integrates, it establishes itself, forms its hierarchy, branches off in all its sort of complexities, it's able to maintain itself against external threats, uh, it's able to stave off internal dissension and infighting, and finally achieves abundance and prosperity, the goal that all culture is driving at as Ibn Khaldun sees it. We then get what Turchin calls a trend reversal. So the first trend, a secular trend, lasting about a century's time or a bit longer, Turchin says elsewhere that it's around 100 years to 125 years is typical. Uh, that's where we hit the peak after that period. And then we have a trend reversal where the we begin moving in the opposite direction. That's a phase of disintegration where the social order begins to fragment, becomes riven with inequality, and it turns against itself. The social order turns against itself, and it becomes dissolute and unable to deal with external threats as they arise. That's a very important one because during these periods when they sort of hit their nadir, uh, that's where you can be overthrown or the entire political order can be torn down. Um, at this point, the nation or people or ethnicity or whatever it is, whatever is governed by this state, either dissolves or enters a new integrative period with the foundation of a new regime. So the entire secular cycle lasts about 250 years, with a short cycle wrapping up in a quick two centuries, maybe a decade or so less, and longer iterations lasting perhaps up to 300 years at the very long end. Depending on how you designate 
where an empire begins and ends in time. This is obviously going to be debatable. Um, but, you know, if we take a look down a list of famous empires, we see that even if the exact beginning and ending of an empire might be in dispute, um, all of these political entities are within that range, sort of suggested by this model. Um, but just to look at some examples, I mean, Great Britain had its heyday at the beginning of the 1700s. Its empire dissolves around 1950. That's where they're giving up the last of their global colonies, right? The dynasty established by Cyrus and his descendants in Persia lasts from 538 to 330 BC, about 208 years. So a little bit on the shorter side of the things, but not the shortest. Uh, the Mameluke Empire endures from 1250 to 1517. It's a bit on the longer side at 267 years. We can even see this pattern where a given empire isn't exactly overthrown or doesn't descend entirely into anarchy, but simply ceases to occupy the position of power it once had and becomes relegated to a sort of like second-rate status. Spain is a great example. From around 1500 to the 1700s, Spain was master of the sea. They held the global reserve currency. They sort of colonized and plundered around the world. But by around 1750, uh, they're completely eclipsed by other European powers. And by the 1800s, the Americans, this upstart power of barbarians, right, is basically clawing away possessions from them with impunity throughout the entire century, um, mainly in the end of the 1800s. The example of Rome is particularly instructive in understanding this pattern because it shows how there are cycles within cycles, wheels within wheels, as Turchin puts it. So Rome, depending on how you want to divide it up, has a very long integrative period during the Roman Republic and then a disintegrative period we call the Late Republic, period of civil war and assassinations and internecine fighting, right? And then the Roman state is reorganized after that period into the Principate, and we get about 200 years of empire after that. After that, there are civil wars and the crisis of the third century. The state is reorganized again, and you that was where you had the Roman Empire partitioned into east and west, uh, presumably it was one empire, right, with two emperors and two junior Caesars. It's called the Tetrarchy, I believe. But that kind of falls apart very quickly. And, uh, you know, it was a... The, this is the dominant period where the, the emperor wasn't just the first among equals as he was conceived of in the Principate period, that previous 200 years. Now the emperor is sort of like a divine figure, right? Uh, this very avowedly monarchistic figure during this period where you have the Tetrarchy and the partition of Rome. Um, but, you know, uh, by the 400s, the Roman Empire ends, even though it's able to even reconstitute itself, what is that, a third time, right? Uh, Rome had enough life in it to reconstitute itself three times, right? Meanwhile, over in Byzantium, they still consider themselves Romans, and in some sense, the national identity of Rome still lives on in their state, that continued through even more cycles. They reconstitute themselves like two more times, right? Or three more times. But you get diminishing returns. And eventually, the disintegration is final because nothing lasts forever. Now, we will get to Asabia and bring that into the discussion and try to compare what Turchin says in his structural demographic theory with Khaldun and Nietzsche um, and their assessments about luxuria, right? 
What Turchin puts forward first and foremost is the driving factor behind these trends of integration and disintegration doesn't have anything to do with luxury or, you know, virtue of character or anything like that. Um, He sees the um, driving forces as being supply of labor and the production of elites. It's a very grounded material analysis, and I, I like that, you know, when it's done well. The important thing to notice here is that both of these factors are measurable. We don't always have an exact measure. We can't always be as precise as we want to be or as all-encompassing as we would like a certain factor to be in what it indicates, but we can find metrics within the data to represent or in some way quantify these two things at least. Supply of labor refers to the proportion of the population that is able to carry out the desired labor relative to the amount of labor actually needed, right? And then the production of elites refers to the number of individuals vying for positions of rulership within a given society, uh, for which we have various potential measures. And that's one of the issues where people think Turchin might have a weakness is how do you define who constitutes an elite? And um, really, I mean, even though you could argue over the definitions he uses, I think Turchin's generally correct when he says, well, you know, in America today, we could look at like who graduates from like an Ivy League school. Will all of those people be quote unquote elites? No, but almost all of the elites will graduate from those Ivy League schools. You could take that with like a number of other factors if you wanted to um, look at how many people are vying for elite positions, um, what the availability is um, versus how many are, you know, how many people are trying to get those positions and failing, so on and so forth. Now, in the way Turchin sees labor supply, we might notice that he's mirroring what Ibn Khaldun says about abundance in some sense, in that it's the thing that all societies seek, but that once they obtain it, it becomes their undoing. And the way this works demographically is that the population expands with abundance of food and resources. Um, These dynamics are far more pronounced, I would say, in the agriculture-based society. Um, And I think it it still exists, and I think Turchin... Um, has good evidence, especially in his book, Ages of Discord, which sort of applies this theory to American history. It still exists after the Industrial Revolution, but the trends are a bit more subtle. Um, It's still there and can still be measured in economic trends we see in the U.S. today, um, well past the period when we were an agricultural society. We, We could just look at it this way. As the population expands, this almost always in and of itself leads to an oversupply of labor, whether people are making wages at a service job or um, whether they're working in the fields, right? And when there's an oversupply of labor, wages fall. Some number of workers begin to slip into poverty as a result of that. Falling real wages then means more revenue for society's elites, and the oversupply of labor therefore always triggers more wealth to flow upward into the elite class. Conversely, when there is an undersupply of labor, such as when there's recently been a depopulation event, for example, in the case of the Black Death in Europe, the popular prosperity increases in the aftermath of that depopulation as the lower strata of society gains bargaining power and a greater share of the fruits of their labor. Turchin writes, quote, Stability and internal peace bring prosperity. Prosperity causes population increase. Demographic growth leads to overpopulation. Overpopulation causes lower wages, 
higher land rents, and falling per capita incomes for the commoners, end quote. So that's the basics of labor supply. Now, as regards the production of elites, this phenomenon occurs in relationship to the labor supply. What happens is that the elite class expands during these times of heightening inequality. The growing wealth that accumulates to the upper strata allows it to accommodate more elite aspirants. There's an elite boom, so to speak, right? Um, the elite population grows as a result of the overpopulation of the society in general, right? That creates a labor oversupply that allows the people who hold property, who hold capital, who hold the means of production to um, pay less in terms of wages because labor is worth less. More wealth uh, is accumulated to themselves um, or to that class of society, and there's a boom, a boom of elites, right? And ostentatious spending then increases among the elite ranks. As the ranks of the elite begin to swell, they endeavor to outspend one another. And this fuels then the elite consumption of wealth as they are all trying to outspend one another. That raises the barrier of entry into the aristocracy, but it also makes the elites of society even more ravenous in their consumption. Eventually, the number of elite aspirants exceeds the amount of elite positions available. Um, this is always true to some extent, but that number swells just as the number of failed commoners has also swelled. And this leads to societal instability. Turchin writes, quote, At first, low wages and high rents bring unparalleled wealth to the upper classes, but as their numbers and appetites grow, they begin to suffer from falling incomes. Declining standards of life breed discontent and strife. The elites turn to the state for employment and additional income and drive up its expenditures at the same time that the tax revenues decline because of the impoverished state of the population, end quote. So Turchin's understanding, it should be noted, is much like my own and that he understands that the, the separation between the economic and political elite, to the extent that this perception even exists anymore, is a false one, right? That those in economic power are more or less assured to steer the ship of state and to use the state as their coffers, he even says. Um, and how many times, I mean, it's pretty much common knowledge now in American politics that our politicians, you know, use their positions of elected office to like play the stock market and, um, you know, make money and enrich themselves. And, you know, who are the people who staff the halls of Congress? Well, they're already, they're elites, they're in the elite club, which doesn't directly correlate with how much money you have, but, you know, it overlaps. It's a Venn diagram, right? So in any case, in times of peace and prosperity, the treasury is going to swell, right? As, you know, a robust, healthy workforce contributes to it. But when this disintegrative phase begins, the rich begin to plunder the treasury in order to compensate for their losses. And you get this pattern, or just to, to, to make money where they wouldn't be able to make a living anywhere otherwise. Like they take these positions as sinecures where they can simply take a paycheck as a result of being part of a political dynasty or whatever it might be. And so you get this pattern of deficit spending and regressive taxation. Um, that should sound rather familiar to anyone 
here in America, right? If you're familiar at all with our politics. Now, eventually some number of elite aspirants who fail to gain entry to the aristocracy will become counter-elites. Counter-elites are those on the edge of the middle and upper class who attempt to rally the lower class to revolution. The consensus among the authorities breaks down, which is what makes this kind of thing possible. And oftentimes this progression of events leads to increased partisanship. Uh, it leads to increased social unrest and rioting and an overall uptick in violence within the society. And usually this breaks out into civil war at some point. Turchin writes, quote, Increased intra-elite competition leads to the formation of rival patronage networks vying for state rewards. As a result, elites become riven by increasing rivalry and factionalism. End quote. Now, at this point, it makes sense to bring in Asabia to the uh, conversation. What Turchin has noted is that Asabia is on the rise as human beings continue to compete as one collective unit. When their competition is between the group level and competition within the group is minimized, or when it, the competition within the group is channeled towards the realization of the collective goal, right? What abundance does, or we might say what luxury does, is expand the population, real wages fall, wealth accumulates upward, the rich begin to extract more money from the system uh, to avoid losing anything, and then this inter-elite competition leads to factionalism within the elite. So as a natural consequence of abundance or luxury, competition is created within the group, within the polity. Um, and this springs from, in so many words, the Matthew Principle. I think I referred to this in a past episode as the Peter Principle. Uh, that is the wrong apostle. I mixed my apostles up there. Um, that is a different principle entirely. What I meant to say was the Matthew principle, and it's the principle I'd like to bring up here again and explain in a little more depth. Um, it refers to a passage, Matthew thirteen twelve, quote, For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath, end quote. Turchin cites the Matthew principle within the work, and it's basically the same thing we discussed in the episodes on capitalism and socialism earlier in the season, that an inflow of wealth doesn't smooth the inequality, it actually heightens it. The rich translate that extra income into even more income, right? It's a, it becomes a positive feedback loop for them. Meanwhile, those who are already struggling find that the competition is even more difficult against those who are already sort of at the apex of the economic hierarchy, um, and they tend to lose out more. Uh, this doesn't happen all at once. It's an intergenerational process, but more and more people who are in the middle class or of the lower classes begin to slip into, you know, destitution. Um, in any case, Turchin describes how this works in a passage contained in the chapter on the Matthew Principle, and he describes it in the context of a society where we might imagine a completely equal distribution of land among a bunch of smallholders, right? What happens when this society slips out of a labor equilibrium, right, and into a state of labor oversupply? Does the distribution of land remain stable if you change that factor? Well, no, not according to Turchin's theory. 
he doesn't just base his claims on, you know, examples or anecdotes from the historical record, but on the mathematical model generated based on the data of the historical record. And so he begins from this abstracted society with an equilibrium of property and introduces labor oversupply. The model then generates an outcome over several generations and charts the new distributions of land. Turchin writes, quote, The situation changes dramatically when the population grows to the point where there is an oversupply of labor. Now, wealthy landowners can get away with paying low wages, just enough to make sure their hired help doesn't starve. The poor, who do not own enough land to feed their families, are forced to work for minimum wages or rent the lands of the rich at usurious rates. Furthermore, because there are more people than are needed to work the land, some of the poor will be unemployed. They will face a stark choice of gradually selling what land remains in their hands to feed their families or starving. Thus, the process of wealth concentration will accelerate. Not only will the rich get huge incomes from their property, they will be able to use some of this income to augment their wealth even further. Overpopulation is a mighty force driving economic inequality. In the model, the poor lost their remaining land by being forced to sell it to the rich, parcel by parcel, to stave off starvation. What actually happened in most historical societies was that the poor did not sell their land outright, but used it as a collateral for loans to tide over a bad patch, a year of poor harvest, or temporary inability to obtain extra work. In the end, however, the land was still lost when the debtors found themselves unable to pay the loans. End quote. This inequality emerges as an indirect function of abundance, and this inequality in and of itself is damaging to Asabia, Turchin argues. As the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, the exacerbation of this difference in their absolute state is perceived by everyone in the society. And also, the eroding middle class perceives its precarity. The poor become resentful and willing to entertain notions of revolution, but such revolution doesn't seem to arrive, at least until the inequality creates tension within the elite ranks itself. These rival networks of patronage, or rival elite factions, then attempt to win the loyalties of demographics within the population in order to advance their ends against their opponents. Turchin notes also that the Matthew Principle plays not just between classes, which heightens competition between you know the rich and the poor in the broadest sense of understanding classes, but also within those classes. So among the working class, it's the struggle for the feeding ground, the struggle for to be able to secure a job when there are not as many jobs as there are people seeking them. Um, and then within the elite, it's the struggle for those positions of high office, the entry into the halls of power. Turchin writes, quote, when some nobles are growing conspicuously more wealthy, uh, the majority of nobility is increasingly impoverished. The elites become riven by factional conflicts, end quote. So Turchin is, in some sense, reinterpreting Ibn Khaldun's theory of Asabia here. And he actually addresses that within the text. He gives credence where it's due to Ibn Khaldun and his um, theory of history. Turchin attributes less like weakening power 
or corrupting power directly to luxury itself and sees the real problem with abundance to be the demographic patterns that it creates. It basically leads to society overextending itself, going into this crazed growth spurt, and ultimately growing beyond its means to sustain, which then generates conflict within itself as the hierarchical structure's inequality maximizes. And that always happens during a resource crunch. The inequality goes to the extreme, and then Asabia rapidly disintegrates. Whereas Khaldun tended to focus on the softening effect of city life, on the weakening that happens to the population as they live in comfort, Turchin focuses on the way that abundance has this downstream effect of changing the social order in like this deranged way. Now, perhaps Khaldun and he can both be correct insofar as when we study the historical examples, um, you know, it, you notice in societies that had, for example, a selection mechanism on the elite, such as the Romans or the Spartans, there's other examples that we've talked about, they're able to maintain their asabia for a, a longer period of time. That also applies to the Bedouins, right? Uh, remember, Ibn Khaldun says that they're guarded by militias of the sons of all the noble houses, right? The nobility gives their sons for the protection of the entire tribe. Um, and these are the people who raid and eventually overthrow the sedentary peoples of the coast. Um, of course, they then become sedentary people themselves, and they are one day overthrown by another tribe from the desert. But the selection mechanism that is upon them when they're out there in the desert is, of course, war, and it's seen by Khaldun, and by Nietzsche, for that matter, it's seen as this means of strengthening the aristocracy, preventing them from becoming soft or incompetent, we might say. What Turchin sees, on the contrary to those sorts of considerations, is that this selection mechanism prevents the inequality in society from getting too out of hand, that it introduces a friction a counter movement against the nobility becoming too inwardly competitive and thus damaging their ability to cooperate. And that quite simply, uh, it, it prevents the oversupply of elites. We can put it like that. In any case, setting their differences aside, um, Turchin still uses the concept of Asabia and considers it to be critical to his theory. This is how Turchin sees Asabia as also playing a decisive role and where the trend reversal occurs when the first part of the secular cycle turns into the second part, pushing from, for example, into from an integrative into a disintegrative phase. He puts it rather straightforwardly here, quote, great differences in wealth among group members undermine cooperation and such groups succumb to rivals with higher levels of asabia. The growing disparity between rich and poor puts the social consensus under strain, end quote. Asabia begins moving in the opposite direction. Again, there are cycles within cycles, wheels within wheels, but um, just like with the Matthew principle, there's sort of a positive feedback loop at work here in which conflict will provoke more conflict. Um, and so that's the beginning of a disintegrative phase when that conflict begins and begins self-generating. Turchin writes, quote, as all of these trends intensify, the end result is state bankruptcy and consequent loss of military control, elite movements of regional and national rebellion, 
and a combination of elite mobilized and popular uprisings that expose the breakdown of central authority, end quote. This process, uh, Turchin asserts, is not linearly uniform. Instead, he says, quote, During the integrative phases of secular cycles, when inequality is moderate, intra-elite competition and conflict between elites and commoners subside. The empire-wide identity regains its strength for a time. It takes the cumulative effect of several disintegrative phases to reduce a sabia of a great imperial nation to the point where it cannot hold together its empire. End quote. Again, uh, the example of ancient Rome comes to mind here. We don't see in the most long-lived nations that they collapsed in the span of a single secular cycle, but rather that their decline of Asabia happened over a long period of waxing and waning. That means that there were times when Asabia was proximally going up, but in the long term, like in the terms of the overarching secular trend, it was still going down. Um, you can see this, uh, I see this all the time when I look at my analytics, right? Because you have a weekly pattern of how many people are listening to, say, the Nietzsche podcast. Uh, it goes up and down. Uh, on like a graph or whatever, but then you can also see the overall trend in spite of it going down, you know, from up or down on day to day, there's also an overarching trend. Pretty basic stuff and statistics, but you know, I don't have visuals, so I kind of have to like uh, invoke the visuals to explain it. Um, in any case, uh, you could think of that like as sort of these trends like a something you could plot out on a graph if you were able to quantify it and measure Asabia mathematically, right? You could say it's Asabia was up here at this level, and then it kind of goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, but you look at the overall trend and it's overall going down, right? Um, that's what has to happen. Uh, a state has to cycle through many secular waves until the process finally is complete and the social structure is completely washed away. So how does that work, right? How does the disintegrative phase eventually return to an integrative one? Um, just as when abundance hits its peak, that triggers the trend reversal. Um, upon hitting the absolute nadir, there's a trend reversal as well. And we proceed back into the integrative. Um, and that happens primarily via a process known as the pruning of the elite. What happens is civil unrest and internal wars continue in generational waves until the excess of the elite has been sufficiently pruned. That means when enough of them have, when their population's been reduced, we'll put it like that. The disintegrative phase of a secular cycle cannot end until the excess nobility is removed. And so the driver of social instability is that elite oversupply that's created by the labor oversupply. And therefore, that is the societal condition that has to end. Um, and you have to get rid of these large numbers of counter elites and aspirant elites. As a result of that process, the overall proportion of elites to the general population then decreases. The elites become more austere in their habits in the wake of this conflict. And ostentation comes to be frowned upon. Turchin writes, quote, Economic distress of the elites and lack of the effective government feed the continuing internecine wars. But the civil wars thin the ranks of the elites. Some die in factional fighting. 
Others succumb to feuds with neighbors and quietly slip into the ranks of commoners. Intra-elite competition subsides, allowing order to be restored. Stability and internal peace bring prosperity, and another secular cycle begins. End quote. This is not a picnic for the common people either, but the reduction in population of the common laborers who are rallied to fight in the civil wars eventually produces higher real wages. So that's the upside for the populace at large. Turchin writes, quote, The collapse of order brings in its wake the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Famine, war, pestilence, and death. Population declines. But wages increase, while rents decrease. As incomes of commoners recover, the fortunes of the upper classes hit the bottom. End quote. Furthermore, those who live through extended periods of conflict tend to become more moderate in their politics. They are less inclined to radical ideology. Uh, Tertian calls them inoculated, right? They see um, what happens when the social order breaks down, so they become less radical in their politics and they become less likely to be swayed if some counter-elite comes along with a radical notion of how they can tear down the system and replace it with something else. Therefore, as a disintegrative cycle ends, the people at large are tired of the chaos and instability, and they become more cooperative overall. Asabia increases. Those who are born during times of peace and stability unfortunately don't receive this inoculation, and so they become susceptible to radicalism and factionalism whenever future instability presents itself, which it always does. Thankfully, in the first generations, they have access to the older generations who are uh, who are inoculate, inoculated, excuse me, and they can sort of see the example of these people and um, perhaps uh, might listen to their wisdom, right? During an integrative cycle, though, the prosperity and the waning numbers of those who are inoculated against radicalism eventually will sow the seeds of the disintegrative cycle arising again. And as the population eventually increases once more, the competition among the people and the swelling ranks of elites will produce yet another trend reversal. And so that's a complete secular cycle. We should also note that there may indeed be seemingly random factors, uh, things that were not accounted for in the mathematical model that strictly looks at structural demographic factors, right? We live in a world with all sorts of random events that are possible. Uh, things can happen, you know, from external factors to the community um, and have a profound effect on the population, right? Things, weather events and disasters, natural disasters, or, um, you know, any number of things can delay or accelerate the trend as it is currently unfolding. Turchin writes, quote, This does not mean that external factors are unimportant. Although they do not cause secular cycles, they can influence them. Suppose that the population has already grown to the point where all potentially cultivable lands are cultivated, so that the capacity of land to feed the people is already under strain. A global cooling of the climate, causing a decline in crop production, will tip the society over the edge of sustainability. The resulting population decline will mainly affect the lower classes, making for a top-heavy society, and that, as we know, rapidly leads to increasing social instability and collapse. If not for the temperature change, the society would enjoy internal peace for a while longer, although 
the disintegrative phase cannot be postponed forever, end quote. Now, at the beginning of this process, what kicks the cycle off, Turchin sees this in his idea of the meta-ethnic frontier. At least historically speaking, that's where this has always happened because of all of these factors that we just described. This idea figures really prominently in War and Peace and War, insofar as he is concerned in that book, not with the rise and fall of just normal everyday states, but of the greatest empires of human history. So he calls this study imperiogenesis, the birth or the emergence of empire, and imperiopathosis, the decline or death of empire. Where Turchin says these empires always emerge is on a frontier. A frontier is the boundary between two states, where two political orders butt up against one another, and they begin to grind against one another like fault lines do, right? And eventually you have a people explode like an earthquake from out of those fault lines. Nevertheless, not all frontiers are the same, and some are more, shall we say, dynamic than others, particularly the meta-ethnic frontier. So two empires can be near to one another, and there might be a frontier between them, but they might be from the same civilization. So France and England, during the time of their long-standing rivalry with one another, that's a frontier, right? But it's not really a meta-ethnic frontier. They're all from the Latin-based European civilization. What about, on the other hand, the Romans and the Gauls, or the Romans and the Germans? Polybius described the unifying effect that the Gallic frontier had on the Italian uh, peninsula because the Italians were all part of this Mediterranean, you know, Indo-European uh, ethnic group, with very similar religious beliefs to the ancient Greeks and to the people of the Indus Valley. Uh, whereas the Gauls are completely different. They have a different way of life. They have a completely different religion, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, Polybius writes, quote, The inhabitants of Italy were so terror-stricken by the invasion of the Gauls that they no longer thought of themselves as allies of Rome, nor regarded this war as a war to uphold the Roman hegemony. On the contrary, every people saw the danger as one which threatened themselves and their own city and territory. For this reason, they responded to the orders from Rome without a moment's hesitation. End quote. So what Polybius is describing is what happens when you have a conflict on the meta-ethnic frontier. Because the two peoples consider themselves, um, they're separate ethnically, but they're also separate uh, based on religion, based on morality, based on way of life. Um, they see themselves as entirely alien or foreign to one another. And so such a meta-ethnic frontier has existed, for example, in the American West during the colonization of the Americas. It existed between the Chinese and the steppe peoples of the Tibetan Plateau and in Mongolia. And the Mongolians provided that meta-ethnic frontier for the Rus, who founded the Russian Empire uh, when the Mongols brought their invasion all the way over to them, right, in Eastern Europe. And so Turchin's idea is that wherever these meta-ethnic frontiers exist, you have the most possible friction, and thus the possibility for the greatest political explosion of a new incipient empire. Given that amount of hardship, facing constant external threats creates the greatest need for a sabia. Um, and it creates people who are the most self-reliant, 
they eventually channel this energy into someone like a Timur or a Genghis Khan, and then an empire is created, right? And they overthrow, remember in Nietzsche in Genealogy of Morality, um, describes it perfectly that these hard barbarians came out of the wilderness and overthrew these mild, sedentary people who had been at peace for a very long time. That's how new empires are formed. Um, but the the place where Asabia is generated uh, as an empire begins to decline, it's very interesting because you can look at it this way. When an empire is settled, the frontier is pushed far away from the center of the empire. That's one way to look at it, right? So empires explode out of, out of the frontier, and then as that empire brings order to everywhere they conquer, that pushes the frontier away from them. And then the place where Asabia is being generated is not in the imperial center. The imperial center is where the rot really begins, right? That's where the Asabia is declining the fastest. Um, which is why time and again in Roman history, for example, when the disintegrative cycle sets in, who is it that always then does battle for the control of the Roman Empire? It's always the generals out in the provinces. It's the people who are out on the frontier who are still tried and tested in battle, right? What's, I think, implicit behind a lot of what we've talked about is something that's been, in Turchin's view, unfairly maligned or dismissed for a long time, and that is group-level selection. Uh, Richard Dawkins famously wrote his selfish gene with the aim of attacking group-level selection and putting forward a narrative of how evolution could work uh, that would make group-level selection obsolete. Turchin thinks that this was a mistake, and it's because natural selection, uh, in his view, is multi-level. It occurs on both the individual and the group levels. For Dawkins, the gene is of greater importance than either the group or the individual, but which Turchin might agree with to some extent, but he thinks where Dawkins loses the plot is that human beings succeed or fail to pass on their genes at the group level as well as the individual level. And that human beings are group hunters, right? Um, we see this in our sports teams. They often mimic the skills needed to hunt, like running or throwing. But hunting, the way we procure our food in order to survive, um, and the way we organize, I mean, this is the most fundamental form of asabia and the most basic state of affairs for human beings. It's not the solitary hunter figure that uh, Thomas Hobbes imagined. Um, and even Rousseau, when he writes about it, seems to think like, oh, this is before there were societies. It's like, no, you had these people who were mostly related to one another um, by, you know, however many degrees of removal, these extended kin groups who hunted together. That was the reality of human beings for a long time. So you coordinate, you do this group activity in order to um, defend your territory, repel external threats, and secure food so that you can eat and live, right? Um, and so the rewards or failures are shared in this case. And if the group, um, for example, faces something like they find that they're unable to coordinate and effectively hunt together as a group, they're all going to fail to pass on their genes when the entire group starves to death. Now, something interesting when we look at the sports team example, we find that in sports teams today, um, these 
coordinated activities where you win or lose as a team, right? Uh, you can look always look at the MVP, but it's the team that wins or loses, say, the Super Bowl, right? We find in sports teams in which the wages are more equitably distributed, all the members work harder. And we discover that even though we may occasionally have people who attempt to take a free ride based on this and sort of parasitize off the work of the cooperative group members, societies... Uh, orient themselves so that free riders are punished usually, right? Or they they find ways to uh, discover and exclude them. Whereas everyone who participates in the hunt gets a part of the bounty. Even if you didn't actually contribute anything, like all your all the spears that you threw when we were chasing the boar actually missed, but you tried and you put an effort with everyone else, if you pay out the reward relatively equitably to everyone who participated and tried and only exclude people when they don't try at all, um, that's where you actually get the most motivation psychologically from all the members of the group. Now, so the way multi-level selection works is that each group creates these mechanisms of punishment and reward to maintain cooperation, to maintain group cohesion, right? Turchin thinks it is very important to point out, and he argues this primarily in the book Ultra Society, that the relatedness genetically of one member of the group to another doesn't actually matter. Um, it might matter a little bit, but the, the main thing that he thinks Dawkins is wrong about is that Dawkins sees all of our cooperative instincts as evolutionary mistakes. He says they're blessed, beautiful mistakes, but that we're naturally born selfish because our genes are selfish and that this bella omnium contra omnis of nature never ceases. We're always at war, even within our own societies. So the only thing that mitigates this is that we have in our genetics uh, yet another selfish gene that happens to be a mistaken mutation. Um, and so you feel compassion or altruism towards those who share your genes it's a very natural thing because that compassion or altruism towards people with whom you have a genetic link will help you pass on some portion of your genes, right? And since for most of human history, we lived in those small groups of a few dozen or hundred people, and they were all mostly related to you in some way, our cooperative altruistic instincts become w well-developed in that situation and became applicable to simply any human being that were around a lot. That's the evolutionary mistake as Dawkins sees it that really the only genetic advantage uh, would be if we were actually helping people who were, were related to. It's simply a mistake that we're now able to apply that to anyone that we like or care about or share you know, a team with or have a shared destiny with, right? Um, Turchin thinks that all of that from Dawkins is basically a misunderstanding. And that suggesting that we still approach the world through the mental framework derived from the Pleistocene is actually a really audacious claim, right? That in fact, the structure of human social relationships and the fact that human beings succeed on the group level means that we're naturally incentivized to cooperate with people who are not related to us. Or, or we might say, regardless of the level of relatedness to us. That that's simply a blunt reality of our success or failure as an organism. And that viewing this simply as an evolutionary mistake ignores the fact that the group level fights for its own survival on the group level, independently of the selection mechanisms and individuals, insofar as the groups which fail to cooperate effectively will be unable to produce future, 
generations, right? So humans don't reproduce as individuals, right? We, we don't reproduce asexually. We require other humans, and humans come in a crop, so to speak, right? Um, they, they come in generations, all the people born within a certain period of time. And oftentimes, whole generations are affected by these selection events that come from nature. Sometimes the entire population is affected, right? It's, it doesn't affect us on the individual level. And so the selection is multi-level because the group can survive or die out collectively. Now, what are we talking about that's the equivalent of a gene when we talk about the level of the group? Turchin says that we could call it a cultural trait. Um, he doesn't really like the term meme, as Dawkins talks about it, um, because he, he rejects the idea that a cultural trait is like a mind virus, which is the way that Dawkins describes the meme, right? He thinks it's sort of like a very trivializing way to talk about, um, because that's the one of the enduring parts of the legacy of the book, The Selfish Gene, which I should point out, I actually really enjoyed reading that book, and it was very enlightening for me in, in many ways. But um, the way that Richard Dawkins thinks of memes being spread, I mean, he basically thinks that genes are these selfish things that just replicate themselves. And so memes, ideas everything going on in our intellectual world kind of mirrors that view that he has of genetics. Um, Turchin thinks a cultural trait uh, should be understood as something much, much more than that because it cultural traits promote or prohibit certain behaviors or certain ways of life. Um, in a sense, they comprise a moral code that's promoted by the society and that society's do actually pass on these cultural traits to their children. And whether this is ultimately, you know, you, you might then pose the question, well, is the cultural trait itself genetic or a product of upbringing or some combination? Um, Turchin says that doesn't matter at all. That's not the issue. It could be any of those. The important issue for Turchin is that the traits do exist and that they are passed on and that they affect the success of the group. That's the big thing. And so what we find is it's not rocket science, right? The groups that promote the most cooperative behaviors most successfully are the groups that survive. This is because even though selfish individuals will tend to survive within those groups and selfish individuals will always be the ones who get ahead the farthest in society and a given human group can become largely selfish over many generations. This can even happen on like the familial level. Um, different families just sort of adopt a sort of kind of a moral uh, familiism, right? They're they're with their family against everybody else, like it's the Sicilian mob, you know, style families. A, a broader society that operates like that will eventually be outcompeted by other societies that have more cooperative attributes, right? So back during the Pleistocene, that would mean in the example we talked about earlier, your your group just dies off. Your tribe doesn't cooperate successfully enough to repel other hostile tribes, uh, control your hunting ground, um, catch food, patrol your borders or whatever, because everybody's out for me or looking for a free ride or more concerned with internal rivalries, whatever the reason might be. If that's your situation, even though it would seem that selfishness is being selected for because these selfish and ambitious people seem to succeed and get to the top of society very often. Nevertheless, if your cultural traits don't restrict that to some extent, a well-organized tribe will then displace you or kill you or enslave you, right? Or you'll just starve out during the hard times 
when co cooperation is absolutely essential or where you need to work as a group to control your hunting ground and not have other people just steal all your food or all your kills. Such that the, the big picture is individuals who are selfish may outcompete within the group, but the group that maintains standards of cooperation as cultural traits uh, that are well enforced, they will outsurvive the groups that don't do that. And so that's Turchin's explanation for why we have cooperation and altruism towards non-related human beings and from people that we expect no reciprocated kindness. When you give a $20 bill to the homeless guy, right? He's not related to you and you are never expecting that he'll ever have a way to repay that act of compassion. Dawkins says that's just like a misplaced desire to help or benefit those who are related to you. And in fact, Turchin would say that that's such an impoverished way of looking at things because whenever we, we don't actually see that as admirable if you stop and think about it for a couple seconds. That wherever we see that happen in the real world, we don't usually regard that as a virtue, right? Usually we call that nepotism. If someone uses their business or their political position or their influence to, you know, give a job to someone for no other reason than the fact that they're in their family. Um, helping out a family member is one thing, but I think the, the idea that nepotism, right, it, it's always seen as a bad thing in society. It kind of brings out the fact that we don't look at family loyalty as a good thing in and of itself in all cases. When it's placed above your ethics, for example, right, or your duties to the broader group. So our regard for other members of the group that share that same ethic or that ethos, that share the same cultural traits, um, the group with which we've all decided to cooperate as one collective unit of power, um, that regard that we have for that collective ethos, none of that's explained by genetic predisposition to help those who share our genes because we act actually actively set that above um, helping those who share our genes in many cases. Um, Turchin would say it's all perfect, perfectly explicable if we inherit cultural traits that like genes pattern our behavior and they're selected for at the group level rather than the individual level. If everyone's keeping up with this so far, think back to what we've talked about regarding Nietzsche's view of consciousness and language. His view of culture is comprised of individual points of valuation, as I've called them, the points upon which a group agrees and is bound together in its common approach to the impersonal um, obstacles or problems of life, questions of life, we might say. We could also think back to Nietzsche's entire supposition about how a value structure can endure, even after the original social arrangement that produced it is long gone, right? The material conditions, the social conditions of the Roman Empire has been gone for a very, very long time. But the Christianity that emerged out of the Roman Empire is still with us today. Dawkins his explanation would see Christianity as a meme. It's like a virus that selfishly spreads through societies. Turchin's argument is that Christianity is a series of cultural traits that must have been advantageous in producing cooperation and binding groups of people together. That's why it would survive. Now, implicit in this theory of cooperation is the notion that cooperation is so valuable because it's nested within a broader structure of inter group competition. Groups compete with one another, meaning that cooperation is key for whole groups to survive. And a group here 
then can't be understood anymore as just a series of individuals carrying their own genes, but people who have the same cultural genetics as well, um, the same morality or approach to life, which they're actually holding above their genes in many cases. And that has so much value in the eyes of these individuals that they're willing to sort of bind themselves together with people who have no genetic relatedness to them at all. And when one group defeats another, um, it's not as if the conquered group is fine being assimilated into the conquering group, right? And sometimes the conquering group doesn't even want to assimilate them. They just wipe them out. But that the groups perceive one another as distinct, often on the basis of differing belief, differing allegiance to a different moral code. And it's not just a connection based on whether there's a blood relation. I mean, we might look at how the nation of Korea is divided to this day. These are people who are all um, ethnically the same, but they have divided themselves because they belong to two very, very different societies. And that is the group level that they've chosen to identify with. Whereas we have numerous examples throughout history of multi-racial, multi-ethnic empires where they're bound together, united under this common principle. And that that's the thing that they're fighting to maintain or uphold, right? And Turchin points out that historically, the moment when we typically see like civilization itself being founded is exactly the moment when society ceases to be about just aggregating groups based on ties of blood, but where human beings begin forming these very large, very effective, and somehow cohesive groups of people who are not all related to one another, and yet they're able to operate and cooperate effectively on this mass scale of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And now in the modern day, millions, hundreds of millions. Um, in a word, this begins with armies, right? Turchin's theory is that war is the fire in which the human race was tempered. And that's where we have the birth of the modern society or what he calls the ultra society because uh, as Turchin and many others have pointed out, in most societies or in most animal species in which the levels of cooperation that we see among human beings uh, is demonstrated, um, for example, ants, they actually are all related. Where you have you know thousands of individuals working for this one collective end, but they're all sisters. Whereas uh, human beings um, are able to form these social groups uh, and cooperate on the scale. Um, you know, he uses the, the example at the beginning of the book of like putting the International Space Station into orbit and just the massive amount of cooperation between so many countless people that's required in order to make that happen. So wh why is war the tempering force? Why is war the thing that is driving greater human social organization? Why is the army the original social structure? Well, because war is a selection pressure. War is competition between groups, right? And that's what drives natural selection in the interspecies level, but even within the species. And so the, I mean, in a sense, we could just say the larger the army, the better in some sense, but the larger the army, the harder it is to coordinate. And so you have to create these new social technologies in order for that to happen. Um, so uh, for coordinating larger and larger populations, you have to have more, far more complex and powerful means of maintaining social cohesion through cultural traits. Um, 
you know, the, there's that saying of the French that uh, God is on the side of large battalions. There's no better guarantee of being victorious in war than of having the largest side in the conflict. And so this is a serious selection pressure on groups that drove them to be larger and larger. The first push into large-scale organized society was undertaken by militaries and through the creation of larger and larger militaries in order to outcompete all other groups, human beings form nations. These begin mostly as city-states, but it's what's called the warfare theory of state evolution, that increased bonds of cooperation are formed to bind together these multiple tribal groups with the purpose of being more effective armies. And so Asabia is really key to this entire thing, since the creation of this group feeling at a large scale is what determines how successful the group is at the nation-state level. And this is what we see historically. What naturally happens is that at the fault lines of culture, in which intergroup competition is at its fiercest, and where the clashes are therefore between those who have a total sense of alterity between one another, in other words, the other is perceived as... Um, all competitor and 0% in-group, right? And so that raises the asabia of the two groups at the fault line to its absolute maximum. And that's where incipient empires form, uh, where they spring out of is these meta-ethnic frontiers because states are born out of warfare. And the logic of warfare eventually produces a state. Now, I'd like to look at a couple places where Turchin discusses the history of the Roman Republic and its transition into the Roman Empire and brings his structural demographic view to bear on sources like Plutarch and Livy, who tell us about the social events in the Republic's history. In their early days, the Romans faced the constant threat of annihilation from the Gallic tribes um, or conquest by the Greeks or another such rival state, but mostly it was the Gauls. Under this pressure, they coalesced into a single people with a coherent identity. Bravery and virtue were the most important traits. In fact, the word for man in Latin, vir, reveals that the concept of virtu is synonymous among the Romans with being a true man, true person. Virtue is its all those qualities that a real man ought to have, right? Turchin writes, quote, Virtus included the ability to distinguish between good and evil and to act in ways that promoted the good and especially the common good. It also meant devotion to one's family and community and heroism in war. Unlike the Greeks, the Romans did not stress individual prowess as exhibited by Homeric heroes or Olympic champions. The ideal of the hero was one whose courage, wisdom, and self-sacrifice saved his country in time of peril, end quote. Um, so virtus includes the ability to distinguish good and evil. So this is a cultural trait. It's a the idea of some trait being exalted by the society and rewarded by the society, um, but it has a moral aspect to it of how you should live, right? Uh, and we might also notice that differentiation between the Greeks and Romans. Um, I think Turchin is dead on with Nietzsche there and perceiving that difference between them. This glory in sacrificing one's life for the sake of country is described by Livy. Um, if it looked as though the Romans were going to lose a battle, the Roman commander 
uh, would offer his life to the gods of the underworld as part of a religious ritual of sacrifice. We've talked about this in a couple past episodes, um, but just to quote from Livia, what he says about this ritual, the commander stood atop a spear and devoted his soul to the most powerful gods, saying, quote, Janus, Jupiter, Father Mars, Quirinius, Bellona, Lares, new gods, native gods, deities who have power over us and other enemies, and gods of the underworld. I supplicate and revere you. I seek your favor and beseech you that you prosper the might and victory of the Roman people and afflict the enemies of the Roman people with terror, dread, and death. End quote. Livy records how those ritual words were uttered by the commander Publius Decius Mus while fighting the Gauls and Samnites in 295 BC. After completing the ritual, he uttered a curse upon the enemy, swearing that the spot of his own death would mark the graves of all the Gauls and Samnites as well. Livy then continues, quote, With these imprecations upon himself and the enemy, he galloped his horse into the Gallic lines, where he saw they were thickest, and threw himself on the enemy weapons to meet his death. From then on, the battle hardly seemed to depend on human effort. The Romans, after losing their general, which on other occasions is generally a cause for alarm, checked their flight and wanted to renew the fighting. The Gauls, especially those crowding round the body of the consul, kept throwing their javelins without aim or purpose, as if they had lost their wits, while some of them were stupefied and could neither think of fighting or flight. The Gauls and Samnites now belonged to Mother Earth and the gods of the underworld. Decius was carrying off the army he had devoted, calling on it to follow him, and on the enemy's side all was madness and terror. End quote. The most noble of all virtues of the Roman nobility was the willingness to die for one's honor and the defense of Rome. Among some of the other virtues, however, as he mentions, is filial piety, or we might say pietas, keeping of one's word, fides, discipline, gravitas, and holding fast to one's morality, constantia. All Romans were expected to emulate these virtues as part of the moral code set by the religiones, the word from which we get the term religion, which means literally the bonds that hold the community together. To put it another way, the Romans saw all of these traits, bravery, self-sacrifice, honesty, perseverance, familial devotion, and self-control as the source of their asabia. We might call each of those a cultural trait insofar as it is a an idea of moral behavior that is exalted by the community. Um, with these religious morals, Turchin writes, quote, the cohesiveness of the society was so high that until the first century BC, Romans did not need a police force to keep public order, end quote. During the integrative period of the early days of Rome, the stark inequality between the different orders of society was also much less pronounced than it became during the late Republic. The patriciate, far from acting in a predatory manner, were concerned with predation against Rome's enemies. They were more than willing to die for this cause. Uh, they were more concerned with going and campaigning and preying upon uh, enemy peoples and preying upon their own people. And so the, their own common populace felt this solidarity with the aristocrats. 
rather than antipathy towards them. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. For one, the common people prosper as the rest of Rome prospers. Um, it was also possible for the most capable out of the middle classes of the small landholders to advance in society. Um, and third, the nobility valued frugality and modesty above all. Ostentatious spending was sort of looked down upon. Um, the motto of the Roman Empire was SPQR, or Senatus Populus Que Romanus, the Senate and People of Rome. But the original term, uh, or the original meaning of the term populus, is army. The early Romans perceived that Rome was created from a unity of aristocrats and their people, or of patricians and plebs, and the whole people was synonymous with the concept of the army. Every Roman was a soldier, whether a hoplite or a commander. The proletarians um, who, you know, by the time of the Republic, right? This, if we get into the very early history of Rome, the plebeians and patricians uh, began as sort of two separate peoples that sort of merged together. But um, later during the period uh, when Rome becomes sort of a more cosmopolitan place, and uh, they're all considered as Romans, the proletarian class, the people who, they, it wasn't just the plebeians, right? Because many of the plebeians were small holders who held land. Even some of the plebeians were wealthy merchants. The jobless, jobless landless proletarians, they're sort of considered below dignity or below respect because they didn't contribute to the army. They're disqualified by not holding property and they had therefore no stake in the country. And so... The bare minimum requirement for service in the army was 11,000 in bronze coins. Um, no silver or gold coinage was in use at the time. The regular army hoplite possessed anywhere between 50 and 100,000. Equestrians needed at least uh, 400,000. And the senatorial class, which represented the true aristocracy, had on average perhaps a million in bronze. Um, now that might sound very unequal, but... Uh, listen to what Turchin has to say, quote, in other words, the richest 1% of Romans during the early Republic was only 10 to 20 times as wealthy as the average Roman citizen. This is a remarkably low degree of economic inequality for a pre-industrial population and even for a modern democratic society. The sad fact is that our society is much less egalitarian than that of the early Roman Republic, end quote. Now, during that time of the early Republic, the vast majority of the population are these small landowners, and the number of slaves is very minimal, especially compared to later eras, right, relatively speaking. The proletarians existed in much smaller numbers, mostly in the city of Rome, few other urban centers. The landholding plebeian class formed this middle class, um, and they prospered under these conditions. And there wasn't this sense of a great gulf between them and the aristocrats, and there wasn't like a mass of like propertyless people that were fomenting social unrest. So there was this possibility for the sense of solidarity felt between even the senatorial class and the common people. And it persisted because on the one hand, the posturing, you know, about, well, those of us with the greatest stake in the empire have the greatest duty to defend it. It, it became posturing in the late Republic, but it was actually true at the Republic's founding. Um, and it's not just, I want to point out, it's not just a couple anecdotes in Livy. Um, from Turchin's analysis of the numbers, a third of the Senate perished during the Battle of Cannae. 
Meanwhile, 50,000 of the regular army, who were part of the middle class, they also died during that battle, which is about a fifth of Rome's total military population. These are brutal population losses, right? But if we pay attention to the percentages, it reveals that the senatorial aristocracy was actually more likely to die in battle than the average citizen. And on the other hand, the plebeian farmers and craftsmen still held leverage against the nobiles um, whenever they became too excessive, um, and that was in the form of the plebeian secessions, when the plebeians would secede from the republic. The nobility considered it unseemly to make these ostentatious displays of wealth or luxury, as we mentioned. In, in fact, in 275 BC, the possession of 10 pounds of silver was considered by the moral censors to be antisocial behavior. Um, I mean, in contrast, if we look at the late Republic, right, possessing 10,000 pounds of silver would have been considered uh, not, e not even shameful. That would have been a source of pride, right? Meanwhile, luxuries were very uncommon during the early days of the Republic. Uh, Pliny considers even the cultivation of asparagus to be an excessive luxury. Uh, aside from a few indicators of status displayed in one's clothing, like the purple stripe on the toga of a senator, for example, the upper classes are generally incredibly modest and even tried to appear as humble as the common people in their dress. When Cincinnatus, the consul, was called up to serve as dictator, he said uh, as he worked his plow, quote, my land will not be sown this year, and so sh we shall run the risk of not having enough to eat, end quote. Tertian writes that, quote, lack of glaring barriers between the aristocracy and the commons seems to be a general characteristic of successful imperial nations during their early phase, end quote. The high level of Asabia is what ensured Rome's continual success and an unusually long integrative phase during this period. The Romans had a tenacious quality that allowed them to continue campaigning even as they'd been dealt massive casualties. They would continue fighting even after strings of losses. Rome often had to fight multiple wars against each of their major geopolitical opponents, often losing repeatedly until they eventually defeated their adversary. This held true in their wars against the Veii and the Samnites, as well as in their wars with Carthage and Macedon. Livy writes that, quote, that lot had been given to us by some fate that in all great wars, having been defeated, we prevail, end quote. And as we have seen, almost the whole of the Roman people was the nation's army. Its senators are willing to throw themselves into the enemy's swords and be cut down. The social bonds, the religiones, held up the Roman morality and it bound its people tightly together. Um, it is as if they felt there's nothing they couldn't overcome with enough discipline, right? So even after these horrific defeats, the Romans continued fighting. They continued to subject their population to the awful selection pressures of war. Um, and thus the pruning continued, right? Uh, the flow of wealth continues, the abundance continues, but the pruning continues. And it prevents, what are those two things? Labor oversupply and overproduction of elites. Uh, even after they endured disaster after disaster, like the sack of their own city by Brennus, the siege of the brilliant general Hannibal, a history of loss-heavy wars, uh, Rome still manages to endure. And Livy writes, quote, no other nation in the world could have suffered so tremendous a series of disasters and not been overwhelmed. 
end quote. So why did this change? Well, for one, nothing lasts forever. A trend reversal is due. And even as the Romans forestalled the disintegrative phase by pruning their own population, eventually their prosperity uh, was bound to result in a boom in population and a trend reversal. And this leads to a downward phase in Asabia, um, a downward phase in well-being and cooperation, and that's the era we call the Late Republic. The Late Republic is the final century and a half or so of the Roman Republic before the rise of Augustus and the Roman emperors, and it's marked by repeated waves of civil unrest, civil war, raging inequality, and a complete collapse of internal cohesion. The Roman census data showed about 200,000 citizens in the aftermath of the Second Punic War. That's in 201 BC. The population of the empire more than doubled during the next century. The population of the city of Rome increased even faster. By the first century BC, there were half a million people living in the city alone. Due to the tradition of lands being split equally between heirs, Soon the Roman farmers were rarely able to pass on a sufficient amount of land to their descendants for their descendants to all support themselves. The land-holding plebeians were the ones who made up the bulk of the army, as we mentioned, uh, the most important part of Roman society, really. The land-owning class of plebeians had to serve these long terms of military service, though, 20-plus years, according to the uh, rules, and long campaigns prevented them from tending their farms, which fell into disarray and ceased to be profitable. Over time, rich patricians and equestrians would then take advantage of their economic plight and buy the land, adding it to their massive holdings. This process went on steadily over the generations. Those who tried to hold on to their land usually accrued massive debts and were eventually forced to part with the land anyway once they were unable to uh, repay it, and if the debt was big enough, the debtor could even lose their freedom. As time went on, the land-holding soldier class, which had formed the backbone of the Roman state, was steadily eroded. Many became landless proletarians, either forced to emigrate to the crowded city of Rome where they would live in unsafe, dirty tenements, or else they wandered the countryside as jobbers, living hand-to-mouth with whatever work they could find. Whereas in the 4th century, the majority of Romans were of the middle class, by the time of the late Republic, beginning in the latter half of the second century, the middle class had all but disappeared. This problem was exacerbated by the excess of slave labor. A massive number of slaves had been taken into the empire. On the Italian peninsula during the late Republic, a full third of the population were now slaves. This made the competition for work among the landless jobbers and proletarians virtually impossible. It swelled the market with an oversupply of free labor. Further, this codified form of social inequality is over the long term corrosive to Asabia as well. Slavery is by its very nature designed to eliminate any kind of common social bond between slave and master. Furthermore, the free but propertyless proletarians who lived in abject poverty did not see themselves as sharing in a common struggle with these enslaved servants of these massive estates. In fact, these slaves were despised by the proletarians and plebeians because they're seen as their competition, right? The effect on the military of the destruction of the middle class was troubling to the writers whose words have come down to us from this period. Appian writes in Civil Wars, quote, 
powerful landowners were becoming extremely rich, and the number of slaves in the country was le reaching large proportions. Meanwhile, the Italian people were suffering from depopulation and a shortage of men, worn down by poverty, taxes, and military service. End quote. Turchin comments uh, about this, perhaps directly addressing Appian's use of the term depopulation, although he doesn't mention Appian by name. He says, quote, Various authors decried what they perceived as depopulation. In reality, the overall population was expanding rapidly. What was declining was the numbers of the middle classes, the citizens with enough property to qualify them for army service. To expand the pool of recruits, the authorities gradually reduced the minimum amount of property that qualified a citizen for army service, and finally abolished it altogether in 107 BC. Despite these measures, the proportion of citizens in the Roman army kept declining, and the missing numbers had to be made up by using non-citizen Italian allies. By the end of the second century, there were two allies for each Roman serving in the army. End quote. So the elites effectively hollowed out the foundations of the society they governed, and this had the effect of sabotaging their own defenses. The military might of Rome was previously sort of premised on the assumption that those who had a stake in the prosperity of the country should defend it. That bound the Roman soldiers, patrician and pleb, together with that shared destiny. But as always happened, the greed of the nobility began to get out of hand. It undermined this mutual alignment of interest, now, as the plebeian smallholder was crushed, most who fought for Rome were from other Italian states that had been subjugated within the past couple generations, possibly there were even Cisalpine Gallic tribes and various other auxiliaries who bolstered the ranks. And these men had no stake at all in the country. They fought merely for short-term, personal, monetary-based interest. And remember what Machiavelli says about that. It's incredibly dangerous to depend on that. Economic excess, as it always does, had weakened the Roman culture in a tangible, measurable sense. That feeding frenzy from the elites um, becomes totally parasitical. Turchin writes, quote, A turning point was thus crossed during the 2nd century BC, whereas Roman aristocrats of the early Republic competed in who could die for patria in the most glorious way, in the late Republic they competed in who could throw the most sumptuous banquet. End quote. I wonder what Ibn Khaldun would have to say about those lines. As these trends continued, the nobility began to do things like loot the public lands and loot the public coffers. Um, so you have the Agra Publicus. We're going to talk about this a little bit next week, but it was like public lands that anyone could use. And uh, the rich began like illegally occupying them, kicking people off who were using them, and then not paying the ground rent that you have to pay to the community in order to use them. Several reformers, such as Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, arose to challenge the power of the Senate in this respect, but they're all killed, uh, usually by armed gangs or mobs uh, hired by the uh, aristocrats who were doing the land theft. Then we have figures such as Marius and Sulla. These are factions within the elite that begin to form, the conservatives and the reformers, um, the optimates, who are the best men, uh, you know, uh, they're basically like, we are the cream of the crop of Roman society. It's the aristocratic party, the the uh, oligarchy party. And then you had the populares, the populist party. Um, and so Marius emerges as this popularist figure. Uh, Sola 
uh, emerges as this optimate figure. And they begin to, uh, through their rivalries, their rival patronage networks that are vying for influence and for income, begin to do battle. They would prescribe one another during these conflicts where you write out your lists of enemies and kill them and appropriate their wealth. In addition to these civil wars, uh, there were numerous slave revolts during this period that began to become increasingly common, such as the famous rebellion of Spartacus that happens during this period of the late Republic. Turchin writes, quote, The extent of carnage during the civil wars of the first century BC were truly awesome. In just one decade, 91 to 82 BC, as many as 200,000 men lost their lives. The Spartacus Rebellion accounted for another 100,000. Yet another 100,000 men were killed between 49 and 42 BC. Most of the casualties in the civil wars were commoners, landless citizens, non-citizen Italians, non-combatants caught in the fighting. But even if only 1% of these casualties came from the aristocracy, it would represent a significant drain on their numbers, end quote. And so these series of civil wars happen, and it sort of crescendos with Julius Caesar, right, who marches on Rome. Uh, he has a series of battles with the conservatives who try to hold on to power. Um, large numbers of them are killed, and eventually Caesar becomes dictator. He's then assassinated and stabbed to death because the disintegrative phase is not ready to end yet. Right. There hasn't actually they haven't hit the nadir and the trend reversal. And so the social consensus has not been reestablished. Uh, the rival factions are still battling one another. There hasn't been enough pruning of the elites. It takes yet another civil war at the end of the late Republic period in order for this process to finally be completed. And that's with the rise of Augustus and the second triumvirate. Um and uh, even after that civil war, there's still a final conflict between Augustus and Mark Antony, right? But all of these events continue to prune the population. And so by the time Augustus takes power, the empire is calling out for peace. Uh, all its members had seen enough violence that they were inoculated against radicalism. They wanted stability. And Augustus did take some measures to distribute lands to the men who fought for him. He did implement new laws of austerity and new laws of morality. But Turchin would argue that's only symptomatic of the trend reversal within Roman society. The measures that Augustus took are sort of demanded by the secular cycle. I think Nietzsche would be in lockstep with Turchin's thinking here that, uh, you should look at that kind of thing as a symptom rather than the cause of anything. The society was ready for an Augustus, ready for a stable regime that comes in, institutes standards of morality, establishes order, holds on to it. And enough of the population had been killed off, and the gap between rich and poor had been somewhat mitigated during this time. The aristocracy, above all, had been trimmed, and all these hostile aspirant claimants had been neutralized. And so in the case of Rome, we have a study in how structural demographics work to drive history, as Turchin would argue it, that the stability or instability of the social order is this direct outcome of demographic factors that wax and wane in this ever-recurring relationship, and that therefore the lifespan of states can be measured and even predicted. What would that mean for us if we applied it to you know, political entities today? 
Turchin's looked at American history, as I've mentioned, and he studied where America is in terms of its own secular cycle. He talks about this in the book Ages of Discord. We don't really have time at this point to go into details really at all, but the main notes to take from that work uh, that I want to bring up here is that America is in the middle of a downward trend in terms of Asabia. We're turning the competition inward, inequality is expanded, there are more elite aspirants and elite positions, and real wages are falling. And so if his demographic theory is correct, we have about 30 to 40 years, give or take, before we hit bottom. And at that point, things will still be quite bad for a long while, but the trend will reverse, and the country will then begin to start reintegrating once again, probably with some political reordering, maybe a new government or a new constitution. You know, the French are on, what, their sixth constitution in America, we're still in the first one, or we pretend we're still in the first one. Something of that nature would have to happen. But that's what Turchin's prediction is for America's future. That's what we're in for, that whatever we do, the polarization is going to continue to get worse because it's only a symptom of this underlying cause. But there's a light at the end of that tunnel by that same token, right? That if we play our cards right, we have the opportunity to bounce back once we bottom out, right? Or it's possible we just choke and fall apart and America disappears after it's 250 years or so. That's happened to plenty of empires too. Sometimes at the point where a trend reversal is possible, you just fall apart and you're, you're, you're done. Um, so maybe that happens. I personally would hope for the trend reversal because I have a love for my own cultural traits, right? My cultural genes, so to speak. Um, and so to conclude, I personally find... Turchin's view of history, his cleodynamic analysis, to be fascinating. It doesn't bother me at all that it dispenses with free choice or moralistic views of history, obviously. Rather, we see the material factors that are pushing people to certain courses of action or behavior. And it isn't quite as simple as a static reality in which there's just people with wealth and people without it, and that's why revolutions happen. But rather, People feel it's a moving thing, right? People feel their precarity in, in their position in the system. They feel which direction they're moving. And when they feel they're moving downward, that's what pushes them to agitate, agitate against the system, right? And people don't lose all their land or all their property all at once. Um, over long generations, you make decisions like you borrow against it and have it slowly pilfered from you, right? And the elite isn't a sta stable thing either. It creates these factions. They begin to compete with one another and people slip out of the elite and they move into it. And so we have all these moving parts, all these moving aspects. Society is this dynamic thing, but I, it's very profound, very powerful to actually mathematize this and find patterns in all those dynamics, see how they all interlock and work together um, and dare to put forward an understanding of human life as governed by these laws, right? As part of this dance of nature, uh, just as we might see in wild uh, animal populations, that human beings are no different. In spite of all of our conscious narration about what's going on, um, what's pushing us is demographics, cold, hard numbers. It's kind of a scary thought, perhaps, but I also find it uh, somewhat exhilarating. Anyway, that was my best attempt at an introduction to Peter Turchin and the rough outline of his ideas. And I chose to cover him the way I did, particularly because Turchin helps us tell a very interesting story about ancient Rome, especially in light of what some other commenters have said about Rome, for example, Machiavelli. So we're going to get 
if you know Machiavelli was the first opinion and this was the second, we're going to get yet a third opinion on Roman history next week with an even more unorthodox approach uh, to kind of crafting a narrative about Roman history. Um, and it's about that same period, the period of the Republic with a focus on the late Republic. We're going to consider an alternative history of ancient Rome, a people's history of ancient Rome. In this view, Caesar is not the amoral tyrant, but one in a long line of reformers who found themselves opposed at every turn by an entrenched oligarchy and who were all assassinated. But Caesar is the one who actually succeeds in beginning, starting, he's the spark that starts the fire that eventually burns away the old political order, right? Um, but he's presented in this new narrative in a very interesting way as a champion of the people. So join me then for a new revolutionary portrait of Caesar as put forward by Michael Parenti, where we talk about his book, The Assassination of Julius Caesar, next week. That's all for now, everyone. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.